Welcome back to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Chloe Rogers, and I'm the Digital Engagement Director here at Rolling Hills. This week, we're continuing our series, Masterclass, where we're considering how we can apply the stories of Jesus's earthly ministry to our own lives. As we head into chapter three of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see what it means to be a part of the family of believers. Following Jesus brings unity among God's people. So let's listen in now and hear more about Jesus's teachings. Welcome to Masterclass, our study of the Gospel of Mark. When we last left Jesus, at the conclusion of Mark chapter 3, verse 7, the Bible says that the Pharisees and the Herodians were conspiring and plotting together to see how they might kill Jesus. You've got these two groups of people that are literally at odds with each other in every single other venue now coming together in agreement about how badly they wanted to eliminate Jesus from the equation. You've heard the expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, this is the situation that we're in. And this morning we're going to take up uh, the remainder of Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 7, and then going to the conclusion of this chapter. And I'll say again, happy Mother's Day. Um, I know that according to Restaurant Association in America, that this is the day out of the year when more people eat out for lunch than any other day of the year. Um, Please do not anticipate getting out early this morning so that you can be first in line at the restaurant. I hope that you have your reservations. If you are making your way over to a buffet, I don't even know if those exist anymore because of COVID, Um, but I do remember going to the buffet, like the all-you-can-eat place when I was a kid. It also says something about us when Mother's Day is the day that we eat out the most. It's like we can't cook a meal for her. What's up? Okay, so anyway, no big deal. (laughs) She cooks all the time. Okay, anyway, so we're going out to dinner. Like the idea of a buffet, you better wear your elastic waistbands when you go because you're going to gorge yourself on all the food. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning in Scripture. So by the time you get to lunch, you may not even be hungry anymore because we're going to take in everything that we can from God's Word. And I think that it really does have a lot to say to us today. Starting in the book of Mark, um, chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. This whole book so far, we're going back and forth between the inner city of Capernaum and then out to the lakeside, the, the, the seashore by the Sea of Galilee. And it says, a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. And Mark is giving us this for a reason. We've already talked about the idea that this whole book of the Bible was written by a fellow named John Mark, who was the apprentice or the disciple of Peter. And so this is literally Peter's gospel or his memoir of the time that he spent with Jesus. But we know that the audience that Mark is writing to is a Roman Gentile audience. So he's writing in a way that's specific to them to garnish their attention and to attract them to know and follow Jesus themselves. It wasn't a Jewish audience that was familiar with all the prophecy and all the religion and all the law and all the customs, but instead a Roman audience that had observed what had happened around the time of the gospel writings and was now trying to make sense of what it meant. In some ways, 
That's us. And there's a significance here, even in the geography. Yes, we got Judea. Yes, we got Jerusalem, the Jewish people that are coming to follow Jesus. But Mark makes a specific note that people from Idumea are coming. And that's the land of the Edomites, if you're familiar with the Old Testament passage about Jacob and Esau, and uh, Esau sold his birthright to his brother for a pot of stew. There's that, I'm making y'all hungry. It's like you're thinking about the Mother's Day restaurant, like sold his birthright for a pot of stew, and the, the, the house was divided, and Esau became the father of the Edomites, and Jacob became the father of Israel, and that's how we trace the history and the lineage and the line of Jesus and all these scripture passage. Well, Edom was constantly at odds with and a foil against Israel throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. And in between the two testaments, in the time of the Maccabees, happy Hanukkah, by the way, at the time of the Maccabees, they came in and overtook Idumea and forced the people there to become Jewish. But they're not real Jews. They're not committed lifelong Jews, and they don't understand all the customs and the ways. And so they're still just as hated and just as disregarded. Well, this is the place where Herod came from. He was an Idumean, not, not, not a birthright Jew, but, a, but an Edomite by birth. And this is the guy, Herod the Great, who's in charge of the whole region when Jesus is born. In fact, when the wise men came from afar, Merry Christmas, by the way, when the wise men came from afar and told him that a new king of the Jews had been born, and he was so incensed that a new king might come and try to take his power that he decided to kill all the baby boys to and under the time that the wise men had seen the star so that there would be no new king. It was that Herod the Great who's kingdom was divided upon his death into his four children, one of them being Herod Antipas. So we get later on into a passage of scripture that we'll read in the book of Mark when John the Baptist is killed. It's not Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus, it's Herod Antipas, his son. And then we fast forward to the future where there's another Herod on the scene, Herod Agrippa, and he's literally killing Christians, some of the actual apostles who we'll talk about today. It's a different Herod in the same line. Well, it would have made sense to a Roman audience who understood the geography of the land that they had overtaken, and they would have understood Herod. He was their king. He was their understanding. He was who they, they would have known his biography. They would have known where he came from. And so to say to that audience that this whole place where Herod came from now has a whole group of people flocking to see Jesus, the baby king that he couldn't kill, it would have mattered. People are gathering around Jesus, and and scripture tells us why. They heard about the things that he was doing. It says in verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples have a small boat ready for him and and to keep the people from crowd. It's like crowd control, like bodyguard service, like, hey, keep a small boat to the side because if the crowd gets too busy, we're going to have to escape out the side. He says, for he healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. This is a, a repeat moment in scripture. We keep seeing these demons who are cast out of people cry out and proclaim that he's the son of God. And why this detail in there? Well, one, it's in there because it actually happened, but it also would have been a point of confirmation for the Roman hearer because they believed in any manner of all kinds of polytheistic gods, and yet they're hearing that all manner of unclean spirits are confirming Jesus as the one true Son of God. And it says in verse 12, but he, Jesus, gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. See, these people are just looking to have their physical needs met. 
They're just looking to have a little bit of relief in their financial pockets. They're not looking to lay down their lives for Jesus. He didn't need these massive crowds of people who casually followed him because A, the crowd was already too much to handle, and B, it wasn't time yet for the government to recognize what a rabble he was causing. You want to be accused of being a zealot and arrested and tried and convicted prematurely, and eventually he was going to teach the crowd some things that made them fall away anyhow because the teaching would become difficult. It says in verse 13 that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. These are the 12 disciples as listed in the book of Mark, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority, the same authority that he did to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. And this is one of those moments that lets us know that, yeah, Mark is writing to an audience that didn't understand Hebrew, that didn't understand Jewish language, that didn't understand Jewish customs, because anytime he gets to a word that they don't understand, he gives the definition of what it means. Bonerges, it literally means sons of thunder. And then he goes on, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who we talked about last week, was Levi, the tax collector. And then it's Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Some of your Bible translations may say the Canaanite. And it's not Canaanite like Old Testament scriptures, Battle of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down, the Canaanites got kicked out of the promised land, and, and the people of Israel were allowed to go. And it's not Canaanite like an actual nationalistic group of people in the Old Testament. It's Canaanite because that's literally a specific word that meant zealot. And the zealots were a group of people who wanted to, by power and by force, they were Jewish people, not Canaanites, Jewish zealots who, by power and by force, wanted to overtake the Roman government. Josephus, the historian, called them daggermen. Like, literally, if you're thinking of the phrase, I will cut you, that's what it was in this moment. (laughs) And Judas Iscariot, in verse 19, the last one, who would ultimately come, and we know, to betray Jesus Now, if this list of disciples is connected with the list that's provided for us in the book of Matthew and the list that's provided for us in the book of Luke, you know that the very next thing that Jesus did on the scene was to present to them what's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded discourse about what it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God. But in Mark, because he's so much more focused on what Jesus did rather than what he said, he skips over that and goes straight into verse 20, which says, Then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Y'all were thinking about that restaurant again. Like, where are you going to go after church? But the disciples, they did not get to eat that day because apparently there was not enough food. or The, the lines are going to be long where you go, I promise. So they didn't even get to eat. And it says, when his family... And this is people that were connected to Jesus biologically at this point. This is Mary, his mother, and his other siblings. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. That literal verb for take charge is literally to arrest him. They wanted to, like, kidnap him, straightjacket, take him back home because what was going on in the life of their son and brother felt crazy to them. They said, he's out of his mind. And it says the teachers of the law, the Pharisees that we've already seen a conflict with in chapter 2, the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. They're going to capitalize on what the family already believes and say, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. They're literally planting this seed of a rumor because they want the crowds back. 
You see, the Pharisees are the popular party. They're the, they're the people party of the day. Everybody wants to be around them and to know them because they're telling you the way that you should live and the way that you should act, and they're setting proper boundaries for you. This is the group of people that you're trying to follow, and all of a sudden, they're following Jesus, and the Pharisees are getting jealous, and they're getting concerned, and so they're like, hey, let's plant a seed. Hey, it's by Beelzebub. It's by a demon that he casts out these demons. Jesus entered the house begins to teach the crowd. He called them over in verse 23, and he spoke to them in parables. We know the parables of Jesus. They're these really incredible stories that he kind of made up on the spot and told. They're in, incredibly powerful. They're rich in meaning. When we understand the parables as illustrations, like really metaphors to prove a point, that's, that's only part of it. When, when, when you unpack the parables and say, oh, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meeting, that's, that's really only part of it. Because, yeah, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meeting that requires me to take some action. That's the point of the parables. Warren Wiersbe, who's a pastor and a writer and a theologian and a thinker and somebody smarter than me, he says that the parables start out as pictures, literally like a painting that you look at. And it just paints something for you that you, can, that you can see the details of farms and seeds and sheep and a man with a barn. And then after their pictures, they become mirrors. It's not just a picture of something else anymore. It's a, a mirror that lets me see my own reflection. It's, it's not just about a seed. It's about my life. It's not just about a lost coin. It's about my value. It's not just about a wayward son. It's about my sin. And after they become pictures and after they become mirrors, then they turn into windows that you can look straight through and see the very heart and the very truth of God. And it always requires a response. And the response has to be obedient submission. So Jesus says to them in that moment, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's. It sounds like Jesus is giving us a recipe for burglary. Like, if you're going to rob somebody and you go inside, um, it's probably going to be a good idea to tie them up because you, you can't be taking all their stuff if they're messing with you. So, like, tie them up, get them out of the way. If you're gonna, like, Jesus is like, these are the steps to commit bur bur burglary. That's a hard word to say. Like, if you're going to burgle somebody's house, this is what you do. Tie them up and then take all their stuff. He says, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven they are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. They were accusing him of being able to do the things that he was able to do because of demonic possession, because of a connection to the enemy. And he gave them an illustration says the enemy cannot stand against the enemy. It's a house divided and it cannot stand. And it was a foreshadowing illustration, knowing that Satan wouldn't defeat his own kingdom, but that God himself would send his son to blow that mess up so that Christ alone could reign supreme. And then he says, hey, it's the only, what we, we all came to understand and know, those of us who grew up in evangelical or Pentecostal churches, we knew that blasphemy, it's the unforgivable sin. 
there was a, an article, a Q&A on Focus on the Family, and somebody was writing in saying, I'm just so concerned about blasphemy because I know it's the, it's the only unforgivable sin, and so I want to make sure that I haven't ever committed it. So, like, what does it look like? And Focus on the Family writes back, and they're like, hey, listen, if you're that concerned about committing the unforgivable sin, you're okay. You haven't committed it. Because the idea of blasphemy, what it means to, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, what, what Jesus was accusing the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious teachers of doing, was to reject the grace that was revealed in Jesus. And by literally attributing his works to the power of the evil one, they weren't just doubting him, they, they weren't just denying him, they were wickedly contradicting him wickedly contradicting the thing that they had seen with their own eyes. It's to completely reject the grace of God that's made available to us in Jesus. You've heard the question, a lot of people have uttered it. I get this question all the time. Hey, Pastor Nick, I'm so concerned for missions. Like, what about the, what about the, what about the lost person? What about the innocent woman who's, who's never heard the gospel and, and doesn't get to know about Jesus? And then all of a sudden, like, there's no Bible in her translation. There's no missionary in her community. And, and she's completely innocent. And she never hears the truth. Like, like, what happens to her when she dies? And I say, oh, it doesn't matter. She doesn't exist. Because the truth is there is no innocent person. Every single one of us is a sinner, and the creation of the world around us cries out the name of Jesus, whether we ever have gospel in our language. So rather than be concerned for the non-existent woman on an island who never hears the gospel, we should be concerned for our own heart of obedience of why we haven't gone to tell her. And even beyond that, we might should be more concerned, more afraid, more in prayer about the people who did hear, but chose to reject. The people who have heard, the people who have seen, the people who have come in contact with the, the, the good grace of Jesus and then adamantly chose to reject it. And so then it says in, in verse 31, then Jesus' mother, it's the only place in the book of Mark where, where Mary gets a line, where she's mentioned in the moment, and it's not super favorable. It says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. It's not the moment where there was, like, such a crowd in the house that they, like, cut a hole in the roof. Like, they're not that. Like, they're just staying outside, and they send somebody to come in to get him. It says a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Like, Jesus, so fast. Like, it would have taken me, like, a week to come up with that comeback, and I would have been like, man, I should have said this. He said right in the moment, like, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those who were seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Um, and, and thank you for the patterns and the truths that are presented in these passages. Um, that we might take them in and be nourished by them, God. Um, and be equipped by them and then ultimately challenged by them to better be the people that you've called us to be in Christ. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. There really are some significant things that we can learn about Jesus in these moments. 
Not only that, there's some significant things that we can learn about who we are called to be as believers in these moments. And both of those are best couched in the idea that the original audience, the author and audience of this book was writing so that a Roman group of people would know that Jesus had the power to forgive sins, that they would know that he was Lord over the Sabbath, that they would know that even demons declared that he was the Son of God, that they would know that he called followers to him, that they would know that crowds from a diverse background gathered around him, that they would know that he could perform these incredible miracles. And we're literally in the same boat that we've been in since the very beginning of chapter one. Literally, people that are finding Jesus and gathering around him in mass. He continues to grow in fame and in popularity, and they're just attracted to him. And verse eight tells us why. But my question for you this morning, it's in your notes, and maybe you want to write down some things. Like, like what about Jesus attracts you to him? Like, like, what is it about the person? It's his eyes. No, not that. But like, what is it about Jesus that's so attractive? Like, what is it that, that drew you to him? The Bible says in, in verse 8 of Mark chapter 3 that when they heard all about he was doing, when they heard everything that he was capable of, they came to him from all over the place. And I have a caution in this moment for these people that only want what Jesus can do for him. Because there's a difference between what Jesus can do for you and what he wants to do with you. There's a difference between coming to Jesus and being appointed by Jesus. And and so that's what happens when we get into the disciples. We've got this group of people that are gathering around and they literally just want the healing. They just want the touch. They just want the extra. They're not necessarily walking into a place where they're committed to follow him. And yet the disciples are being appointed by him. You know, people will come to church for a hundred different reasons. I used to say this as a student pastor. Oh, oh, youth will come for a thousand different reasons, but they're only going to stay if they have some friends. They'll, they'll come for a variety of different reasons, but they're only going to stay if they have a community. And I think the same is true about us as adults. Come for a, a whole bunch of different reasons, but the only thing that's going to make you stick is if you build community. People will come to Jesus for 100,000 different reasons, but they're only going to stay if they understand sacrifice. We've got some images for you. The first is me at a sports event. That's not me. I don't have those jeans with holes in it, but it... But if this was a sporting event, that's what I'd be doing. Y'all, I never pay attention. I don't know what's happening. I miss all the details. I'm literally the guy in the stands that bought a ticket for something, and I'm just scrolling through my phone the whole time because I don't care. (laughs) And then you've got the people over next to me, and this is what they're doing. They're like the super fans. They didn't just buy a ticket. They painted their faces. Like they're into it, not missing anything at all. And the other group of people at a sporting event is the players. And sometimes I feel like this is church. Like, like you've got the people that just come and they casually get here. And I don't know if you're taking notes on your phone or if you're just playing Candy Crush, but you're just casually checking it out. And you may come regularly as some sort of just like nominal attender and, hey, oh yeah, I love the Titans. I've never been to a Titans game. And if I did, I'd probably be checking my phone. Oh, I love church. I love Jesus, but mm, I'm not that dialed in. And, and then you've got a group of people that are the super fans. Y'all have lanyards on this morning. Like, y'all are serving. 
Like you were in it. You were here both hours. You took care of my kid at, when he's, he's in third grade, by the way. You took care of my kid. It was awesome. Thank you for your ministry, by the way. Like you made the coffee this morning. You got here earlier than anybody else to play the drums. Like there's, you're like in it to win it. And that's it. Like you're committed to, you're the super fan. You, know, you love Jesus so much. You're going to sign up for every single Bible study, every single opportunity to serve. You are never going to miss a Sunday unless you've got like COVID or the flu. And you're going to text me that morning and apologize for not being here. And then you're going to worship online, not once, but twice because you were a super fan. But even that's not the same as being a player. You see, you can do a bunch of stuff in here and be a super fan, but it's what you do out there that makes you a player. That's the ice rink. That's the football field. That is the extent of my sports knowledge, and I can't go any further with this illustration. (laughs) There's a difference between being a fan, being attendee, and being a participant. He called James and John the sons of thunder, boner gays. And literally, it means that these are people who were called to go with a powerful voice. And they were ultimately invited to give their lives for this. Some of y'all are going to go to brunch, and it's going to be a late brunch because you're not getting out of here until like 1130 or after, and then you got to get to the restaurant, and then you got to wait for your table to be ready, and it's a very high traffic day at restaurants, so it's going to, you're going to have a brunch at two o'clock, and you might have some eggs or some chicken or some pork, and you realize that where breakfast is concerned, the egg participated, um, the, the chicken, he participated in some way, but the, the, the pig gave up everything. And I think about that with regard to the church. Because some of us just want to participate in Jesus. And apparently nowadays you can get a trophy just for that. But some are going to be called to give their everything for Jesus. That's a son of thunder. And I find it so remarkable that these rough and gruff fishermen dudes who, who probably didn't speak eloquently and probably didn't have much of an education, all of a sudden, John, his life is transformed. This rough, thunderous guy writes epistles to the church that when you boil them all down, they are about love and the relationship that we're supposed to have amongst ourselves and the tenderness that we are supposed to show one another and the forgiveness that we are supposed to extend to one another. History tells us that later in life, and Scripture affirms that he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and what historians want us to understand is that that Isle of Patmos was not just sitting alone with no friends, it was literally a place of slavery. He spent his last days in slave labor and also writing a book called Revelation that would help us put a bow on the Bible to where we understand that the great God of this universe passionately loves us and is coming back to get us. About love. And then his brother James, go to the end of Acts. It's that third Herod. He takes his life. James gives it all up for Jesus as one of the first apostles to lose his life. The sacrifice and the death. You can have people who come to church for a thousand different reasons, but they're only going to stick with Jesus if they understand what it means to make a sacrifice. So then we transition to a third group of people. We start out with the people that just want Jesus to touch them. Like, I'm just going to casually come to Jesus because I think he can do something for me. And then you've got the apostles who are literally going to give their lives for Christ. And then you've got the family of God who didn't recognize who Jesus was in this moment, and they thought he was crazy. My question for you is, what is so hard to believe and to share about Jesus? Like, what's the hard part? 
have the words and the ways of Jesus, have you ever understood them to literally just be completely crazy? Because that's what his, his family thought in this moment. When they, when they heard about everything that he was doing and everything that was happening around him and all that the crowds were saying about him, they said, we have got to take charge of him because he has lost his mind. And the truth is, some of us have approached this gospel and some of us have approached this Jesus and some of us have approached this life of Christianity and thought to ourselves, you have got to be crazy. I'll stay over here and check my phone. Y'all can go do that stuff. Because sometimes the things that this word says and the things that this word commands and the things that we understand to be true about believers in Jesus Christ are nuts. Have you ever understood the ways of Jesus to be positively possessed? Not just nuts, but you've declared them wrong. Who are you to declare the word of God wrong? Oh, I'm the person that gets to decide what parts of this book are true or not. You see, the parts of this gospel that I like, I'll believe and I'll follow. But the parts that I don't like, I'm going to put those on a shelf and just ignore them altogether. That's the people that we've become when we put ourselves as a seat of authority over what is true and what is not, over where it comes from and where it doesn't. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed. What he's doing can't be right. Sometimes it does seem like being Christ-like goes, goes too far or gets too hard. Does God really expect us to do this? Does God really expect us to endure this? Does God really expect us to live like this? Yes, he does, but not alone. You see, he gives us a spiritual family. Jesus goes on to say that whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. He provides for us a spiritual family, and he wants us to be part of a spiritual family. And that's what we get to be, whether it's biological or not. People who share not only a common confession of Christ as Messiah and Savior, but people who share a common mission and are ready to follow him literally anywhere. This is the word that binds us together. And it's, it's not our own blood and it's not our ancestral lineage. Like we're not tied to Abraham in that way. We're literally tied to Jesus as the adopted sons and daughters of God. And that's why Kim's picture at the end of that last song and so many other pictures in this room of adoption, of taking somebody into your family who was not part of your family, that becomes the best picture of the gospel that we can see in this room better than any of our biology because we have literally been the adopted sons and daughters of God. Why? Because of our common confession in Jesus Christ. And we don't in that moment just get salvation. That would be enough because y'all, that's good. We get to go to heaven. And we don't in that moment just get the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to guide us and direct us and to teach us what truth is. And and that would be enough. It would sanctify us and make us like the Lord. But we also get the church, the body of believers to surround us, a spiritual family to be a part of and to invest in. Think about your family for a moment. Y'all got some crazies in there. (laughs) I know you do. I know we all do. Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. We all have it. And some of us hide our crazy. And some of us are just happy to put it out there on display. Whatever you do, you. It's all messed up. There's there's no such thing as a perfect family. If, If you think that your family is perfect this morning, let me gently burst that bubble so that you have a soft landing among people who love you because that's not true. Like, it's messed up. And so somehow or another, realizing that we've been the adopted sons and daughters invited to be a part of the family of God, we might want to cut our own families some slack and extend some grace. We're invited to be a part of this. It was really hard to be a believer in Jesus Christ in the first and second and third and fourth centuries. 
And some of us right now are just talking about, oh, it's so hard to follow Jesus in 2022. America has just gone so off the rails of where we start. And y'all are lamenting over how hard it is to be a Christ follower in America. Let me introduce you to something called the rest of the world. Where people are literally dying for their faith in Jesus. 2022, pastors and Christians are being ripped out of their homes. Kids are being taken from their families. All because they confess this Jesus. It's hard out there. And then hold on for just a second, because I've got the fourth century online, and they want to say to us, let me give you some perspective of what difficulty is. Because Christians were literally being burned at the stake by the world empire at that point in time. I don't think it's harder to follow Christ today than it was yesterday, or 50 years ago, or 500 years ago, or a thousand years ago. Sometimes I think it's harder to recognize Christians today than it was at any of those moments. It's sometimes harder to identify us today because we're angry. We are mad and we are bristling when anything doesn't go our way or gloating when something seems to go our way. It's bitter and we somehow act as if we're better. In the first few centuries, the way that believers were recognized was their love for one another in spite of their very inherent differences with one another. The first theologian from Northern Africa was a fellow by the name of Tertullian. He came around in 160 and lived to 220. He was raised in a pagan family not to know and follow Jesus, to study Latin and to become a lawyer, and later as a young adult, he became a Christ follower, and he's known as the father of Latin theology because he was the first one to write exclusively in Latin. Hello, we're talking about the Roman Empire here. He wrote a couple of treatises. One was called To the Gentiles, and one was called Apology, and it directly attacked pagan beliefs um, and argued that the Christian life was morally superior. And he imagined that people on the outside of the church were looking at the people on the inside of the church with this remark, look, look how they love one another. We, we hate each other. And see how they're ready to die for each other. Y'all, we be killing one another. Like, the pagans are literally looking at Christians and saying, they are so different. It's positively crazy. They're ready to die for each other. They literally love each other that much. It was Tertullian that said that the, the, the blood of the martyrs was the seedbed of the church. He understood sacrifice. What if today lost people who are antagonistic to faith and like literally on the brink of making an all-time declaration to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and to declare that Jesus is not real and that he is not God's son, that they're, they're literally uh, antagonistic towards the gospel. What if they could only respond to the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ by marveling at how nice we were to each other and the way that we lived out our conviction of love to one another? We can start out saying all day long what attracts us to Jesus, but I, I, would, I would really rather ask the question, what about you attracts others to Jesus? What about us and the way that we live our lives in front of one another is going to literally make Jesus attractive. Jesus said himself that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. We come to Jesus as sinful tax collectors, and then we prevent other people from getting to Jesus as self-righteous Pharisees. The whole goal is that we would live out that love. There's a contrast in the way that Mark presents these people. 
And there's the surface level people who just want what Jesus can do for them. And there's the committed folks who are willing to die for him. And then there's his own family who's ready to reject him because they think this is too hard, too crazy. When you get there in faith and when you get to an understanding of who Jesus is and, and what he's called us to and the sanctifying, sustaining grace of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we get a team to, that's why we talk about church partnership. We get a family and a team to belong to. I love that you're here, but I don't want you to be a casual attender of this church that shows up every now and then. You're just checking your phone, looking at the time, figuring out when you're going to get to the restaurant. You're probably not even hungry anymore. We want you to be an active participant, somebody that's a committed partner of this family. And we're not a perfect family, and we know that, but we're a family of believers united in a common confession of Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior who understand our mission to make him known in the world. Yeah, we want you to be a super fan. You might look a little nuts, but it's good. But then we want you to leave this room and go out there and play on the court and live a life that is so marked by love and so marked by affection for the world that people marvel at who Jesus is because of you. When I was a little kid um, and I went to churches, we sang like all these old hymns with the piano and I can still remember some of the lyrics. Like one of them was like, I'm so glad. Like I feel like if I'm gonna sing this song, I've gotta, I gotta, gotta go back into the Alabama that I was born in and, and pull up some Southern accent. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been, y'all know this, washed in the fountain. Cleansed, I started too low. Cleansed by his blood. And then I thought the next line, was join hands with Jesus as we travel along. Because you know, you're a little kid, and you just hear the words, and you think, that, like, sometimes I sing the wrong words to the songs on the radio, and my kids call me out because they know what the real words are. I thought the line was, join hands with Jesus as we travel along. It's not. It's joint heirs with Jesus. Heirs, family, inheritance, the recipients of a kingdom that the writer of Hebrews says cannot be shaken. Joint heirs with Jesus because we're adopted into the family of God because of our common confession of faith and because of our deep desire to live on mission for him. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. It's literally the ground and the earth that we walk on. I'm a part of the family, the family of God. That's what we're invited to. That's what this word wants from us. That's what it means to be a mother or a sister or a brother of Jesus. And that's what the world desperately needs to see, that we're a family and that they can be a part of it too. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the very diverse group of people that you've brought into this place. From Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and Tyre and Sidon, from Antioch and Gallatin and Fairview and Alabama and New York City and all the places that we come from, all the, the differences that we bear. Father, thank you for knitting together this group of people because of their common confession in faith in Jesus Christ into a family, but a family that's on mission, that has a purpose. God, remind us this morning that we, that we don't need casual attenders. That, that, that you're not looking for 
fans to sit on the sidelines and ask what Jesus can do for them and scroll through their phone and then go home. You want wild, bold, audacious followers who are not only serving inside this room, but are going on mission outside of this room to live a life of grace, to affirm you as a God of love, and to say to the rest of the world that you created them, that you know them, and that you love them and desire a relationship where they confess you as king and give you their all. That's our prayer. And it's in the name of Jesus that we make it. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're glad you spent some time with us today. Have a great week.